Okay, so um, I'm Matt, recording a, another interview for the Zero to ASIC course, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Dan Rodriguez, and that's Rodriguez with an S, not a Z. And so, Dan, maybe uh, you can just introduce yourself briefly. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Dan Rodriguez, and uh, my professional background is mostly in software engineering. That's high-level, low-level software, some bare-metal software as well. Uh, the interest in bare metal software is how I got into the whole FPGA digital design thing in the first place. So that started way back in 08 or 09 with a, a Digilent basis board for Spartan 3. That was fun. VGA port, tons of stuff, heaps of fun to play with. The Xilinx IC tools were not as fun, um, but um, that's not a problem anymore because we've got these nice open source tools with the lattice parts. So it's much more fun that way. Um, and it's a convenient segue into the ASIC stuff since the FPGA stuff with all the digital design. Uh, that gave me a decent foundation to, um, uh, I guess, deep dive into the ASIC stuff since I had a nicer platform to work from. Yeah, so you were um, one of the 40 slots that went in on the first shuttle. Um, so how did you hear about the, um, the opportunity to get involved in that? Yeah, I think it, um, it came up on the uh, the one bit squared Discord at some point where, uh, oh, we have this ASIC thing. Here's an ASIC channel. And I saw the um, the Sky130 announcement way back. Um, at the time, I was thinking, oh, that that sounds pretty interesting, but oh, there must be a a lot of uh, a lot of time invested needed to get up to speed with the tools, any teething problems with the whole process, and so on and so on. Um, I was making a FPGA project called iStation32. It's this retro-inspired uh, games console. I think someone was nice enough to take the video call, which included a sprite generator, which was what my shuttle submission was. They ran it through the open lane flow and said, oh, um, this thing is tiny. It takes no space. You should give it a go. And I thought, mm, OK, fine. Let's give this a shot. And uh, yeah, I guess that's where uh, we got into it. The sprite generator from that project, the FPGA project, is pretty much the basis of my shuttle submission. Okay, so you already had like a fair amount of um, work already done. The, the the stuff that you had to learn was the uh, like the open lane flow and how to integrate in Caravel and how to do the submission. Yeah, that was the bulk of it. Um, it was nice having pretty much um, an FPGA project ready to go. It's simulated, it's verified, it works on hardware. It's hopefully not a huge pain to get on the um the ASIC flow. And you know, like you said, it was really just um the open lane flow, getting my head around that, working through any um bugs or crashes or any surprises along the way, and there were a few. But yeah, it really helped considering um I had pretty much a month to get something ready to submit for the shuttle. So having something ready to go, it's simulated, it's something to work from, that really helped. How long you said like it took you a month, was that kind of like part time work? Like Got any, um, can you remember kind of uh, how much work it was to get something ready? Uh, it was a fair bit of work, but um, that month was, say, an hour or two on an evening here and there, just bits of spare time um, since I had full-time work with completely unrelated things hmm. going on at the same time. Um, a lot of it was pretty much, I would say it was 5% just the, um, the HDL stuff getting the, uh, the wishbone peripheral stuff and all the rest of it working for Caravel. Um, the other 95% was, uh, oh, what's up with this DRC problem? Why is the power grid not connected? Uh, why am I getting this other issue? Just all the little things at the fringe. 
um, there was a fair bit of effort needed to fix all of those problems. But um, yeah, I expect it to be a lot less painful than next go around because with the um, the newer branches on Caravel and Open Lane, it seems that a lot of it is now done automatically. A lot of the crashes and bugs that were there that um, uh, got a lot of people complaining in Slack seem to have been resolved now. So um, it seems like most of the teething issues are solved, which is good news for everyone else for the next shuttle run. Yeah, that was another question I had for you. Are you going to be applying for the next shuttle? Uh, I have a few other things going on right now. Um, the deadline is actually sooner than I was expecting. Um, June the 18th, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty close. Um, I have some audio and video stuff that I'd like to maybe get onto the next shuttle if it's possible. Mm -hmm. um, if not, I think there's more shuttle runs planned after this. Aren't yeah, there? another there's at least four, one or two other six in total so far. Yeah. Yeah, right. So if you miss this one, there's an opportunity or two later on. So I'm not too stressed about it. Okay. Um, so just one other question on um, the open lane thing before we move on and talk a bit more about um, what your submission actually is. Um, how, if I did a diff of your, um, the config that you used to harden the user project wrapper against like the, the one that came in the repo, how much customization did you have to do to get it to work? Do you mean in terms of um, the the TCL um, configuration or just the, uh, the user project wrapper or? The configuration. Oh, right. Um, that was actually one of the trickier bits. The power configuration in that um, TCL file needed a bit of customization. Mm -hmm. I think when I, when I used pretty much the out of the box one, um, the tools pretty much said everything is fine. There's no problem. LVS passed. DRC checks are, well, they're not zero, but they're the number that we expect to get, right? Yeah, the 75 or whatever that was, yeah. Yeah, whatever the number was, 75. Um, and then you open it up in Magic or K-Layer and you say, oh, well, it looks like it's there. Everything's hunky-dory, right? And then you zoom in on the where the power grid is. It's like, oh, the wires aren't there. Shouldn't there be wires there? And then I think it was either yourself or someone else said, oh, the power's not plugged in. So the chip's there, but um, they'd all be DOA because the actual um, the wires that would connect to the power grid, and they're absent. And the tools didn't catch it at the time. So, oh, I had no, exactly I'm the same actually issue. Not done yeah. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> I think a few people had the same problem. And later on, they actually did add the LVS checks to go, hey, um, the power nets are in fact connected. But mm. early on, even when the submissions were open, I don't think those checks were there. So people were submitting things that were just not powered at all, yeah. which was a bit of a surprise. And did you do a gate level um, simulation? Because presumably that would have caught it, like a disconnected power problem. Uh, yeah. Um, it's yes and no on that question. Um, mm. For the gate level sim, I did have it working with the same PNG generation um, screenshots I have on my repo. Um, that all seems to work pretty well. The only gripe I have is that it is unbelievably slow. Yeah. So I, I'm someone who's used to Verilator and CXX RTL, and mm. they're like a thousand times faster. With iVerilog, mm. you're sitting there waiting a good 40 or 50 minutes to get one frame. <laughs> so uh, there's a bit of patience involved. But uh, yeah, it's, it's something that we just have to do it. It's part of the process. And if you can't get gate level sims working, then why would you expect the chip to work? So mm. it's just something you've got to do. Um, okay, so we've kind of been um, hedging around what your actual application is for a while, and now we're talking about frames, so it's pretty obvious it's a, a video um, application. 
um, I've just got your um, your repo loaded up on my screen now. Maybe you can talk us through uh, what VDP Lite is, what the aim is. Right, so VDP Lite is pretty much, uh, it's a wishbone peripheral that generates sprites and outputs the results on a um, VGA-like interface. Right, so um, the idea behind this is, so you have those screenshots there, right? But there is no frame buffer that actually um, you plot pixels to and it goes out the VGA port, right? So big, this I is, um, I'm sorry? Too big, I assume, too, like doing, oh, yeah, um, you didn't, it was difficult integrating memory in the first round um, and then DFF RAM for an entire frame buffer would be too huge. Oh so yeah, it'd that, be prohibitive. It'd be yeah. enormous. Like So you were racing even, the beam. Oh yeah, it was, um, it was very much a racing the beam approach where um, the basic idea is that you have, you have a double buffered setup, but it's not double buffered in the sense that you have two frame buffers. It's double buffered in the sense that you have two line buffers, which is pretty much the same concept. But the idea is that every single line, uh, you iterate over all the sprites in the sprite memory and you see, does the raster position overlap with where the, um, the eight pixels or 16 pixels of height of the sprite would occupy? And if it does, the sprite ID and the intersecting line with the raster gets put on a what I term the hit list. So the sprite ID and the white intersect go into this hit list. And what the hit list is, is pretty much a null terminated list of uh, sprite IDs that I need to go fetch graphics for because it overlaps with the raster. So on the following line, I would iterate through the hit list. Like, oh, I have sprite ID four or whatever, and I have line five of that sprite to fetch. So I would go off and fetch the graphics for that line and a bit of other attribute memory would have the um, or the glyph or the tile number that has the graphics to fetch. So I, I'd say get line six of that graphic tile. And I would fetch another sprite attribute, which would have the X position. So once you have the graphics and the X position, you know where horizontally on that line buffer you must start blitting pixels, right? So I would blit the eight pixels just horizontally, not vertically, because the line buffer is only for one line. So the eight or 16 pixels get plotted. And then on the next scan line, the results of that line buffer will be sent out to VGA port. And if you imagine this process being double buffered and being repeated for every single line and they toggle on each line, you can just get 480, 520, 640, 800, however many lines you want using just two lines worth of memory. And that was enough to get it to fit into this synthesized uh, flip-flop memory. So it's not even the um, the pre-hardened uh, macro blocks with the dual port RAM that some people were using. It's just synthesized flip-flops. So it's it's completely randomly placed. It's a mess. It's not very dense. But the good point of this approach is you don't need much memory. So I could get away with yeah, that. Yeah, so did you um, – so, yeah, you said it was um, 300 – no – 640 by 480. Um, so does that mean that you needed 640 times two flip-flops? Uh, in this case, I, I doubled the pixel width to take the, uh, the requirement to, from 640 to 320. And then I, uh, I guess I'd say letterbox, I had pillars on the left and right side. 
that knocked it down to 256. So um, with those measures in place, I could reduce it to an eight bit address. And because the color depth per pixel is only two bits, I think it was 512 flip-flops from memory and then twice that for each line buffer, right? And if you try to push beyond that, I found that tools either took way too long or it just took too much space or uh, Triton routes, I think it was, it just took forever to route because these aren't neatly yeah. arranged grids of flip-flops. It's just whatever the- um, Clouds. Um, they just end up where they end up. It's like a, just a spray gun of flip-flops. There's no water yeah. toilet, so. I'm just um, looking at the GDS of the user project wrapper on my screen. And um, uh, yeah, it's interesting how things get laid out. I can see there's like distinct clouds here, like a very dense cloud. And then have you got any idea where the, like all the, actually I can find out myself if I turn on and off the flip-flops. Um, Oh, that's actually not... that's interesting. I don't think I've ever tried um, filtering by flip-flops. So I'm guessing one of those large clouds or two of them are where the um, the 512 flip-flops are. And there's a few more for sprite memory and attributes and all the rest of it. It's quite, yeah. I feel like I could, uh, if I spent a bit more time, I could find out where they were. They look fairly evenly distributed. Yeah, it is interesting how they... Um, they form those clouds, like you say. You get like those um those oval or circular shapes where, well, these are clearly yeah. related, but didn't know what they were. Uh, and I guess one of them is probably the character ROM as well, since that takes up a decent bit of space too. Okay, yeah. So um, here we go. I've just uh, hidden pretty much everything apart from the the flip flops. Yeah, they look like they're fairly evenly strewn. <laughs> <laughs> they probably take um, up a decent bit of space, right? There's only five, twelve of them, but yeah, they're just randomly placed. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, and just for people that aren't haven't done a video project, um, the like the kind of the more normal way in modern, more modern hardware, where you've got more memory, is where you have a frame buffer. So, a, like, and you have two of them for double buffering. So, the graphics engine, whatever that is, is rendering one whole screen and then when that's ready the whole like norm like the pointer changes so then the vga driver is outputting from the second screen and then then you've got the other one that you can wipe over and regenerate all your output on um but as you explained um memory is a premium in in this layout at the moment because uh, the density for memory is so low so it takes up so much space yeah that's so, right and um you mentioned um, clearing the screen there. Um, it's kind of the same principle, but you just need to be a bit, I guess, creative in how you um, manage the process of clearing and blitting, right? So for clearing the screen, um, to make it work with the FPGA design in the first place, as you read pixels from the, um, the line buffer, it's almost like the erase head on a cassette tape. There's like an erase head immediately behind the read points and it will just write transparent pixels right after it reads it, right? So Yeah, and you've got to like, um, mm. get that timing exactly exactly right or you get all kinds of weird problems. Oh yeah, you get if you try to say erase at the same time you read, you get problems. Um, if you obviously forget to do it or you screw it up, you'll get garbage pixels that were meant to be erased before. Yeah, there's um, and of course it has to be aligned with the the raster beam, right? So 
you don't score any points for doing it early because there's no frame buffer. And if you screw up and you're too late, well, you can't just tell the TV, hey, can you rewind the raster a bit? It's too late. You've got that stuck timing. And that's one of the reasons why the, like doing VGA stuff is quite an interesting FPGA project, I think, because you're like really, if you tried to do that with a microcontroller or something without dedicated video hardware, you you kind of use up all of the CPU just trying to meet the timing and then you don't have any space to actually do the cool stuff. So, um, yeah, that's right. You've got, you said you've got a link with the wishbone to the Pico RV32. So what, how does that, how does that play a part? Is that, um, can it load sprites off the SRAM and then put them there and then, um, uh, control where all the sprites go? Like, how does that, how does that side of it work? Uh, yeah, you, you more or less covered all of it. Um, in terms of um, memory that the wishbone bus exposes, there is the three, I think it's three banks of sprite attribute memory, such as the X position, the Y position, and which glyph you want to show, whether it's an A, B, C, or some custom defined character. And then on top of that, you have um, the palette memory since it is color indexed. So there is the, um, I think with the IO limitations we have, there was enough to make 12-bit RGB, so just four bits of channel to keep it simple. So there's some palette memory so that the CPU through the wishbone bus can define what those palettes are. And then there is also one of the little stretch goals was to add some user-defined characters, right? So there's like a, a 32 by 32 um, pixel, very small synthesized memory where you can define your own tiles, right? So if I got the chips back and hopefully they'll work, I could make like a say a simple 3d space shooter game where you did the old trick where the further away an object is you just have a smaller sprite or graphic right and the further it is you draw a bigger graphic so you can make even with the limitations that there are you can be a bit creative and see what you can come up with almost like a demo scene thing yeah so that um that does bring me on to another question i had for was, was um do you have any projects planned for this? Have you started writing firmware for a game or something? Uh, I haven't got around to the firmware yet. What I really wanted to do was- um, Classic. <laughs> as it happens, right? <laughs> oh, well, the PCs get made. I'll, I'll, I'll get to the software. Yeah, um, actually, before that even happens, I'd like to, I'm assuming at some point they'll release the, uh, the footprint for the carrier board that eFabulous is going to come up with, right? So I'd like to make a custom PCB that just breaks it out to a VGA port. Yeah. And I don't think I mentioned it yet. There are two, a pair of serial interfaces where you can just plug in an old Nintendo controller or something, an NES controller. So two people can play it with um, uh, some old school controllers, which I think would be nice. So I'd like to make a PCB for that first. And once I have that, I'll, I'll see what games I can come up with. I have a few ideas. Um, so just on the topic of the PCB, I'd like to give a shout out to um, Sam Littlewood because um, he's already got a um, a PCB that he's designed with the footprint. So um, what I'll do is I'll send you a link to his repo and you can fork it as a, a starting point. Uh, well, yeah, right, that's good going by Sam. Um, I didn't realize yeah, people yeah, were he's... already starting with this. Well, a lot, um, a, a lot of information was actually in the, um, the data sheet, but probably you, like myself, only read the stuff that was absolutely critical for putting together a submission and not, none, mm. of the, none of the PCB stuff. But Sam's actually read about the kind of the boot process and 
um, how you connect up the SPI flash and kind of what the programming interface is and all this extra kind of stuff. So it's definitely worth a look at what he's done there. All right. Um, yeah, so you're going to have um, like uh, 50 of these ICs. Um, has anyone approached you for like asking for some samples so they can make some custom games with them? Uh, not yet, but I'm happy to hand some out. Um, okay. It's one of those things where... Um, I guess it's like the ice 40 FPGAs where you don't have that much to work with, but part of the fun is trying to squeeze what you can out of a limited resource. And, um, I'm all about that. So that's, it's the FPGA stuff I mentioned before, try to milk the most out of what, um, what limited resources you have. Don't just go to the larger full of feature yeah. part. That's part of the fun. So yeah, as soon as I get those chips, um, I'm keen to see what I can squeeze out of them. That's one of the interesting things about um, creativity, isn't it? Is it you kind of your you need the limitations, and then people get super creative about getting the most out of uh, something or being like super creative when they're when they when they're working within limitations. Yeah, hundred percent. Like if the ceiling is if the ceiling is too high, you're not motivated to reach it. But if you can just reach the ceiling, it's just almost there. Then you're more motivated to make a shot for it, right? Um, so I think, um, let's, um, let's now talk about, um, simulation. So I asked you earlier to pick, um, one of the topics in the, uh, terminology section of the zero to ASIC course website, and you chose simulation. And I think that that's like, it's quite a crucial part of, um, putting together a submission, but also, um, it's quite, uh. I've always found um, doing simulation for video projects um, especially tricky because of the time involved. You know, you have to have so many clock cycles to render a, a frame of video. So could you talk a little bit about um, whether you, um, I, you said that this, you'd already um, done some tests on an FPGA, the hardware came from another thing that you were working on. Were you, did you also try putting Caravel into an FPGA? Did you try it with Pico RV32 and the Wishbone and... Um, after you've mentioned the FPGA side of things, could you could you tell us a little bit about what you did on the simulation side to check that uh, everything was working correctly? Right. So I didn't try taking Caravel and putting it on an FPGA. That's an interesting idea. I think a few people have floated the idea, but I don't know if anyone's actually followed through on it. Um, I think I did manage to do that, but not with all of Caravel. I just took out. Pico RV32 with the wishbone and the logic analyzer, and then put my user project wrapper inside that. So then I could test some simple firmware where I could, over the serial, I could interact and enable and disable each of the little projects. And because one of my projects was a video project, I was able to actually see the output on a, a VGA monitor, which gave me some good confidence. Um, so. Um, you said that you did some testing on an FPGA with your project beforehand because it came from that. Um, but for Caravel, you did mostly simulation. Can you talk a little bit about the, your kind of simulation strategy? How did you do the testing? Yeah, right. So for uh, this project, um, I more or less had a, uh, let's call it a VGA state dumper, which pretty much... Um, for every single clock cycle, it will just dump the uh, the state of the VGA pins to a file, and it will just keep it pending the state for each clock cycle, right? Then um, if you wait long enough, the 40 or 50 minutes or so to get a full frame, you will have 
enough uh, VGA state to run it through a Python script, and that will generate a, uh, a PNG file of the frame. So that's not ideal in terms of time. I could have done something similar to what you have, where just extract the peripheral with your VGA um, controller, and um, I guess add the scaffolding yourself such that you don't need Caravel. So that's something I might do for a future shuttle submission. What I've done for the original project that I took this VGA controller from uh, was pretty much make a very later test bench, which would be much, much faster than using uh, iVerilog, about a thousand times faster. And a fairly bare bones way to do that would be to just, um, you could have C++ code that just drives the wishbone transactions manually. So just assert the address, the wishbone strobe, wait for the acknowledge signal to come back and all the rest of it. And that will be one way where you don't even need a CPU. So if you just wanted to focus on testing just the peripheral, no CPU, that's pretty much what I would do. That's worked well for other projects in the past. Or I could do the FPGA strategy that uh, you've came up with for your own project. So yeah, there's a few ways to do it. Yeah, I had a nice um, pull request on my VGA uh, clock example where um, a, a very late test bench was added and that lets me um, run the video at uh, real time and even like adjust the minutes and seconds and stuff with the key. So that was that was super cool. Um, mm. um, I just like to uh, mention who that was. That was... Um, Diadatp. So thank you for the um, pull request. And um, I post a link to this repo in the video description if you want to check out uh, how they did that. Nice. Could you say anything about the way that you structured the simulations and the tests inside Caravel? Was that straightforward or how did you get along with that? Right. So for the Caravel test structure, um, if you saw the project repo, there will be a test for the video frame, the gamepad, and I think one or two others. So the basic idea was to, um, I did the typical strategy where I have an includable make file in the, the root level of the project. And I would pretty much just put all the core um, make file variables, the main peripheral, and just try to customize the least amount that's needed and trying to use, um, I guess, reusable test modules. And by test module, I mean, say, for the video frame, there'll be one module that just does the RGB state dumping. So you don't just need to copy paste the same thing over and over again. And uh, yeah, pretty much any strategy that would minimize the amount of boilerplate you need to write for each individual test case would, would go a long way here. from a project called um, Ice Station 32. Where can people find out more about that? Right, so that's a uh, public on my uh, GitHub profile. So if you search for Ice Station-32, it should be the first result. So that is an FPGA project that you can run originally on an icebreaker, the one bit squared product with the uh, DVIP mod, and you can also run it on a ULX 3S. So, those are two popular um, FPGA boards that you can uh, buy and run with the open source tooling. So if you want to get your hands dirty or just um, fool around with some retro inspired hardware, that's one way to do it.
looks really cool. Actually, seeing some of the terminology there reminds me a bit of the Hackaday Supercon badge because there was a similar kind of retro sprite-driven video hardware built into that. Yeah, that's a cool one. Um, I would eventually like to make a an actual, whether it's a handheld or a standalone game system with controller ports and such and such, eventually I'd like to get around to that. That'd be cool. With your own ASIC inside. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, so I um, I really look forward to uh, getting hold of a sample and being able to play one of your games on a, a custom chip. That'll be great. Put me down as a mm. as a as a demo tester. Um, and uh, just as a last question, could you recommend any resources for people wanting to learn about this uh, stuff further? Uh, I'll recommend the same way that I learned about it at the start. Um, if you pick an old an old real game system, whether it's the old Game Boy or an 8-bit Nintendo or a Super Nintendo, just pick whatever interests you. If you search for technical documentation on that, you'll find you'll find that chance site's pretty well documented. The tutorials are readily available. There will be plenty of getting started guides. Um, there will be nice amounts of hand-holding tools to get you going and a, probably a supportive community built around it especially for the 8-bit Nintendo one. Um, if you choose that to as a way of getting started, you'll eventually find that um, there are patterns and reasons why the engineers did things that, the way they did. And that would give you, it will give you some ideas on, um, oh, that's actually, I think I see why they did it that way. That makes the hardware pretty simple, or that makes the hardware a lot easier to design. Like, there's a lot of sense to this. And eventually without seeing the original schematics or whatever I've, I've i got an idea of um oh okay i can see how these parts come together now i'll just have a go at making my own interpretation of that and um whether you just stick to making software for one of the existing systems or you try making your own system that's probably the best way to get started like see what the real world examples did and find an appreciation for the way they designed things the way they did because there is a reason they actually did design things the way they did. Have you seen the Ultimate Game Boy Talk on CCC? The Ultimate Game Boy Talk? No, that's new to me. What's it about? Um, there's a series of the Ultimate Talks, and one of them was um, like, so they're an hour long each, and it was like a super deep dive into the Game Boy. It was on uh, Chaos Computing 33. Um, but yeah, so I I've, I can't remember if I watched that one or the Super Nintendo one, but that was um, definitely a very interesting video. I was just wondering if yeah, you... Yeah, right. It sounds about right. If you want to yeah. make your own, um, I guess, Game Boy-inspired game system, that's the sort yeah. of stuff you want to look at. That's a good one. <laughs> okay, well, Dan, thanks so much for your time and for uh, telling us about your project submission. Uh, wish cool. you all the best with the ASIC when it arrives, and um, maybe we'll get you on again to uh, give us a demo with the real hardware. Oh, awesome. Thanks for having me and thanks for your time. Cool. Bye-bye.